Would you bow your hearts in prayer with me? Father, we we are humbled before your greatness. And in in singing that last song, Lord, all it, but my heart just went to to John as he encountered the risen Christ, the glorified Christ. One like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Lord, may we behold your greatness as we come to your word. May we be still in all the things that have threatened to steal our attention, our, the wanderings of our mind, the worries of our week, would they be still as we behold the Son of God. We ask this in His most holy and powerful and precious name. Amen. In the old an often repackaged story of the prince and the pauper. A young prince who is tired of his duties and responsibilities decides to trade places with his peasant doppelganger for a taste of a simpler life. And the climax of every version of this is when the real prince or princess, depending on the version, gets themselves in trouble or happens upon someone in trouble And in order to find deliverance from the impending doom of, say, having their hand cut off for stealing an apple or something of the like, they reveal their true person and authority to the amazement and shock of everyone around them. And then everyone around them in this immediate moment has to figure out how to appropriately respond to the majesty of the throne that is suddenly standing right there in front of them as they see this person's actual status and authority and identity made clear. In the Gospel accounts of Jesus, we have the Son of God who was in no no way, shape, or form tired of His heavenly duties, uh, tired of His heavenly majesty, but as part of his heavenly duties and majesty, clothed himself in humble humanity, came to earth and lived under a perfect cloak of humanity for some 30 years. And then that cloak was peeled away. And in the gospel accounts of Jesus, our Savior is not trading places with some sort of earthly doppelganger, but he comes and hides his divine nature 
then as his eternal majesty is revealed, people are trying to respond to this unique authority that he holds. And Mark in his gospel does not take long to jump into the deep end of that pool. He starts in a way of telling you the main character has already achieved, that the kingdom of God has come. This is the beginning of the gospel of the Son of God. He immediately shows the Son of God converting followers, teaching authoritatively, healing people, kicking out demons, as Jesus is proclaiming the kingdom of God and doing so with a very powerful preaching ministry and even going so far as healing leprosy. Jesus has very quickly earned a reputation by this point in Mark chapter 2 of a powerful teacher who has a unique authority that no one coming before him has seemed to have had in what he says and in what he does. And here, Mark displays in the passage we're going to look at today, that unique authority of Jesus growing to what we didn't even think possible before this passage. And so let's read, starting in Mark 2, verse 1. And he, Jesus, returned to Capernaum, and after some days it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men, and when they could not get near to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes sitting there were questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? Why? Or, or, he is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus perceiving in his spirit, that thus, they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven, or rise up, take your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, take up your bed, and go home. And he rose immediately, picked up his bed, and went out before, him, all, before them all, so that they were amazed and glorified God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. The unique authority of Jesus draws a crowd that includes these faithful friends. So this crowd has come to Jesus and included as these faithful friends. These, these four men, and it sounds like possibly more than just these four men, carrying the paralytic on the mat, and they're coming to Jesus. Now, Jesus has gotten so famous, he can no longer openly enter the towns. But he somehow slipped back into Capernaum, where he now lives. Uh, it appears to be, they say it's his home. Uh, I think we can safely assume from the text he's squatting with someone. That Jesus is living with someone, and if, he, if he's back at Simon's house living there, then he's about to have to heal Simon's mother-in-law from another headache. And the, the word spreads, and this crowd comes. It, it's just packed in there. And 
now, by now we have a model of Jesus' ministry established, that he is teaching, and while teaching, people seek him out for healing. And in this case, it's these friends bringing a paralytic on a mat, and there's a clear and urgent need as they carry their friend to Jesus. But the house is so full, they cannot enter. And the image we have here is a house that's not just packed from within, but the doorways are full. You can imagine a house. Jesus is somewhere in the middle of this house. People are in other rooms of the house trying to hear what the Savior is saying. They're crowded around every doorway and window of this house trying to listen to the words of Jesus. So they can't even get the mat to the doorway itself. And they're all gathered in, trying to hear every word, because his podcast hadn't yet come out, so this was the only way to do it. And these friends were so desperate. And we ought to learn from their desperation, what they went through to get their friend to Jesus. They really had three choices. They could leave and be like, hey, today's not your day. They could have waited. They could have waited until Jesus was done and the crowds had gone home. But they weren't willing to wait. Their need was so urgent. And so their last option was to find a third alternative. Their desperation drove them to pretty creative ministry. Do you find yourself taking the need for Jesus, whether it's your own or someone else's, for granted? Or do you find yourself seeing the need for Jesus, and I pray that we as a church would grow to this place where we see the need for Christ as so dire and urgent that it leads us to creative ministry. That we will do anything in our ability to get people to Jesus or Jesus to people. And we at Westchester, we're a generous bunch. When we see a need, we, we take meals, we loan cars, we open our homes, and so much more. We care a lot about physical needs. But may we grow more desperate to see the needs of Christ met by Christ himself. These friends, the men carrying the mat, the they who's going along with them, they set an example for us. They are unwilling to wait. Their friend's urgent physical need requires immediate attention. And their, their, desperate, their desperation quickly returns to resourceful action. If not, it's a bit reckless at least. And, and maybe you know someone like this. Do you have a friend who always has that tool in their truck. Well, I got a tool for that. I got just the thing. I got it in my truck. I got it back home. This is somewhere between, this friend is somewhere between Bob Vila and Wreck-It Ralph, where they are, they have the resources and they don't care what it takes to get the job done. Maybe you have that friend. This paralytic had that friend. Someone in this group, and you can rest assured, it's not in the text, but we know it. They said it with a Southern accent. I know what we can do. We'll get him up there on that roof. I saw a shovel and some rope out back. I bet we can do this. And they go up and they, they, they remove part of the roof. And some people, some people believe that there were roofs at the time that had tiles you could take out, kind of like 
carpet squares, but for your roof. I, I'm, not, I'm not great at first century architecture. Uh, I didn't take that class. But the language of the text is that they, they unroofed the roof. And so you can imagine the scene. Jesus is teaching. Everyone's crowded around. And those in the room with Jesus are the only ones in the house who know what's going on. If people are in other rooms, they have no idea what's going on. If people are outside listening in, they have no idea what's going on. But above them, they start hearing footsteps. And they start hearing scratching and prying and digging and hammering. And dust begins to fall. And all of a sudden, there's a skylight. And that, that, that room that was probably a bit stuffy had great ventilation for a little bit. And then they lower him with ropes. you got to think about this. I bet none of these people have ever practiced lowering a paralytic with ropes. We often just imagine this gradual, even lowering. I bet it was a bit clumsy. I bet, I bet none of those guys ever said, I just did this last week. Here's what we need to do. And the mat was probably not rigid like plywood. This was probably very uncomfortable physically and socially for a paralytic. And Jesus, as he has been before, as he was uh, in his first time teaching in the synagogue, is in the middle of teaching and is interrupted. There it was by an evil spirit. Here it's by a paralytic. And the And the paralytic gets a much warmer welcome. Instead of being told, hey, you're interrupting me, Jesus looks on him. And you can imagine the murmur of the congregation that day. And the room becoming quiet. In verse 5, Jesus saw their faith. He saw the faith of the friends. He saw their belief in Christ, that Christ could do this. Jesus, we have no other way to help this man, but we know you can, and so we're going to go to these great lengths to get him to you. They believed Christ and did whatever they could to bring their friend to Jesus. And Jesus looks at them, he sees their faith, and he looks at the paralytic, and he says the most absurd thing. Your sins are forgiven. Why would he say this? The man has a paralysis problem. Why would he talk about his sin? Nonetheless, he forgives his sin. Which brings us to this next group in the crowd. This next group in the crowd is the skeptical scribes. That the skeptical scribes, they hear this. And it's interesting that the scribes were among those who, hearing that Jesus was in town, made sure they got a seat. These are the most astute theologians the area has. And they come and they, they, they want to hear Jesus. They want to hear this guy who's been traveling in the synagogues, who can't enter towns. 
They want to hear what he has to say. They want to see a miracle. They want to get their eyes on it so they can tell whether or not this is legit. Jesus, knowing those scribes are in there, he says, your sins are forgiven. And they start going, well, what's going on here? What, why does he say that? Had he just healed the paralytic, they probably would have been like, yeah, that's pretty cool. Can't argue with results. Why does he say that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive his sins but God? Notice how they ask very reasonable questions but get to the wrong answer. Why does he speak like that? Only God can forgive sins. Both of those things, perfectly reasonable to say. They had, their theological claim is right, that only God can forgive sins, but their Christological assumptions were wrong. They were poor Trinitarians with a fine view of God the Father and too low of a view of God the Son. Here, the education of the scribes is overshadowed by the faith of the friends. And I want, to, I want us to take a couple of cautions ourselves from these scribes. The first is framework over text. They had a framework of a Messiah that did not fit the text of the Word of God. They had a framework of a Messiah that would come in and be a military political ruler and not a guy who would teach in a house and heal people and travel about the countryside and live in their region of all places. He was supposed to come out of Jerusalem. Bethlehem, then Jerusalem. Not, not this backwoods stuff. Their framework of the Messiah missed the word made flesh. Second, the second caution here is that you never know too much to not be taught by Jesus. You're not too smart for Jesus. So Jesus, being savvy and relying on the Holy Spirit, knows that these scribes are questioning this. He perceives it in his spirit I think it's safe to say that Jesus forgave his sins first intentionally for this reason. Knowing the scribes were there, knowing it would trigger them. He brings this out and, and he goes, I know you're asking the question. Here's my answer. Why do you question these things? Which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? Jesus' answer by saying which is easier, he's not questioning the difficulty of pronunciation. It's not a word count efficiency thing. Jesus is saying which is easier to say and really mean it. You think I'm powerful because I cast out demons and I heal leprosy and I teach the word of God well? Let me show you what my real power is about. Let me show you who I really am. Let me show you my majesty. It is really hard to say to a paralytic, get up and go. That's not an easy thing. But it is much more difficult to be able to say your sins are forgiven and have it actually mean something. He is pointing to a new and greater miracle. The leprosy, healing the leper, was a phenomenal miracle healing this paralytic on a mat so he can get up and walk home without need of like years of physical therapy once he receives, regains motion is amazing. The level of healing that Jesus gave him. But to say your sins are forgiven and have it actually mean something, that's an eternal miracle. Healing the paralytic is not necessarily an eternal miracle. 
He could, in his newfound strength, decide to go swimming, dive, hit the bottom of the lake, and become a quadriplegic the next day. Jesus' miracle to Lazarus was not an eternal miracle. Lazarus had to die again. But healing this man by forgiving him of his sins, that's an eternal miracle. Look, it's possible that a prophet or priest could preach the word with authority. It's possible that, that, that anyone gifted by God for such, or, or God would use his power in such, could heal people of great things, even raising people back to life. But no one except for the Lord is able to pronounce the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is setting himself aside from all other priests and prophets and aligning himself with God alone. He is proclaiming his lordship here. And then between the friends, between Jesus and the scribes and everyone else, there's this paralytic, this helpless paralytic. He doesn't have a single line in this place. Somehow he's a main character and an extra all at the same time. I don't know how he worked that out. And we don't know what he thought of his friends carrying him. We don't know whether he was hopeful or humiliated as he was being lowered down to Jesus. He is practically a bystander in this. He's argued over, he's told what to do. There's this controversy, and then he is fully ministered to. He receives the full benefit of Jesus' ministry. As G David Platt points out, that he comes to Jesus with an urgent physical need and an ultimate spiritual need, and Jesus addresses both. He benefits from Jesus' complete ministry. He is changed on the outside and the inside. Jesus cares for his urgent physical and his ultimate spiritual, and this is a good model for ministry. And we need to care deeply both about the physical and the spiritual needs. And here's why. God created both the physical and the spiritual. He created our mind and our spirit. God loves our bodies and our heart and soul. If we can't care about it for those two reasons alone, then we really need to wake ourselves up. Strategically, they enable each other in ministry. That as you care for someone's physical needs and show them the love of Christ, their heart opens up. Also, they are incomplete without each other in ministry. If I were to go and try to plant a church among a, play, among a people where there is deep physical need for clean water. And I had a Brita water filter in my fridge. And I had drinking water for days that was clean. And never helped the people with their need for water, but only talked about Jesus. I would have an incomplete ministry. And if the people don't have the clean drinking water for their own health, how are they ever going to make disciples and plant churches around them? A couple great examples of combining the physical and spiritual needs that we have is one is our daughter church, Highland Park Community Church, is they're working to open this child care center because there's a real need for child care where kids will be treated well and loved and parents can, in a trustworthy way, drop them off so they can go to work, so they can earn a living to help their family. And as they're doing that, they're told about Jesus as they're being shown the kindness of Christ. 
We have global partners who are in creative access nations where they're going in to educate, to work in the medical field, to work in, in helping with food and helping the local economy, all of which gives them a platform to talk about Christ. Tim Keller points out that Jesus, Jesus didn't just heal this man of what he thought would make him happy, but he healed him of his deepest needs. If he had healed him just of his paralysis, the man would have gone away thinking, my life is now complete, and just a week or two later would have realized how broken he still was inside. Keller points out that Jesus doesn't play a cruel trick on him by only healing him of his paralysis, but Jesus loves him, so he heals him of his paralysis and forgives his sins. But Jesus does this in such a way that he points out that him being healed was not the most important thing for people to see. There was something much more important, and it's in his answer, and it's in verse 10. But you, but that you may know, rise up, take your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Jesus did this. His unique authority draws a crowd of faithful friends and skeptical scribes and a helpless paralytic in order to show that his great and unique authority changes bodies and souls for the good of us and the glory of God. Jesus says here, he, he makes a claim about himself, the Son of Man, pointing back to Daniel, pointing back to the prophecy. I'm the guy, he's telling everyone. Don't miss, I'm the guy the prophets talked about, and I have authority here to forgive sins. Jesus wants his followers and the crowds to see exactly who he is. He has already performed a lot of miracles in a short amount of time, but he is not just a miracle worker. Jesus with the paralytic shows the power to forgive sins by his power to cause him to rise up and walk. Keller points out in his healing, he, he says that Jesus is saying, I'm not just a miracle worker, I'm the Savior. Any miracle worker can say, take up your mat and walk, but only the Savior of the world can say to a human being, all your sins are forgiven. Keller goes on to say that Jesus knows what the religious leaders are thinking. So he knows that if he begins to let them, to let on that he's not just a miracle worker, but also the Savior of the world, they're eventually going to kill him. If he only heals this man, if he not only heals this man, but forgives his sin, he's taken a, a decisive and irreversible step down the path to his death. And by taking that step, he is putting a down payment on our forgiveness. Jesus knows that healing this man in this way will lead him to the cross, where the payment for this man's sins will be made, and the payment for our sins will be made. Jesus has the authority to forgive sins because he, as part of the Godhead, has been chiefly offended by your sin. Sin is a perpetration against, uh, perpetration against God's holiness. Sin is His to forgive. And so, 
we need to respond to Jesus' authority. Jesus has this authority to forgive sins. We have sins. We need to respond to his authority. I'm going to lay out four simple ways for us, maybe not simple, four ways for us to respond to his authority. The first is to stop at nothing. That we should stop at nothing in seeking the forgiveness of sins, whether that's our own sins or the sins of someone else. That we should stop at nothing from understanding in our heart to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. Jesus, you can forgive all that's wrong with me. All that I've done to deserve eternal separation from God, Jesus can forgive. And all that my friend, neighbor, family member, co-worker has done to offend God's holiness and to be hostile towards God can be forgiven by and through Jesus. And I need to stop at nothing in letting them know about that. Get yourself to Jesus. More on that in just a minute here. Second is have faith. These friends, they didn't understand how Jesus would heal them, but they knew he could. And so they weren't willing to go to another source. They weren't willing to wait. We have longings in our souls, and even as believers, our flesh is still in there, and our fleshly longings are still there, and we are working every day in our walk with Christ working every day in our walk with Christ to deal with those longings, to make them obedient to Christ, to put them in their rightful place, to subject them to the Word of God. Let us not look to any other source. In a culture that is embracing new age, that is embracing the power of crystals from the moon, that is embracing all these things, that is becoming more and more animistic. That's where our culture is heading. In a culture that is embracing more and more the, the, the longings of the self, let us not look for any other source for our longings but Christ himself. He is the only one. And don't be so content to see those around you look for the other longings as well and look for the other sources. You need to, this, the third one is to submit yourself to the authority of Christ. And this is quite simply, just repent and be forgiven. There are so many times where we just minimize our own sin. And so much of the emphasis on Mark 1 and 2 is on the preaching ministry of Jesus. So let's just think for a moment over things that Jesus says in his preaching ministry that we need to pay attention to. You shouldn't worry. Do not worry about those things, but instead seek God. And so worrying, my worrying, can be a problem. If you lust after another person in your heart, you've committed adultery. If you hate them, you've committed murder. If you're not abiding in Christ and not remaining in Christ, you're not going to be capable of, of walking with Him in a fruitful way. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. So where is your pride taking you? 
or where you feel that you have enough, that you feel that you've arrived at a certain point. I've read the Bible this many times. Look how great I am. Go make disciples. What are you doing with that command? Teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. Before we feel like we are doing great in our spirituality, we need to take great stock in the words that our Savior said and the expectation of obedience that He had. And as we do that, we become more and more aware of our sin. And so what do we do with that? We go to the only one who has authority to forgive us that sin. And isn't it great that Mark, as he put this together, he put our need for going to Jesus for the forgiveness of sin right after right after talking about Jesus' willingness to heal. That when you are feeling the weight of your sin, you can go to Jesus and say, Jesus, if you will, you can make me clean. And remember what Romans says. It's not our sheer terror that drives us to repentance. No, it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. That we know that when we repent, when we come to God with this broken spirit, this contrite heart, say, Lord, forgive me of my sin, I've fallen short of your glory, that his response is kindness. And we can go with that guarantee. And then finally, as as we submit to the authority of Christ to forgive sins, we should submit to that with amazement. As the praise team comes forward, I want to talk about amazement here. Because the crowd... They see this guy, he gets up, he leaves his bed, he walks home. This guy was paralyzed, unable to move, on a mat, lowered down, uncomfortably, clumsily through the ceiling. Jesus sees the faith of his friends, he goes, your sins are forgiven. He knows what the scribes are saying, he goes, look, what's easier to say, rise up and walk, or, or, or your sins are forgiven? I'm telling him he's going to rise up and walk so that you can know my authority to forgive sins. His walking is evidence of my forgiveness, and he walks and, you, and the crowd is amazed, and they glorify God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. We're going we're gonna to end. We have a couple songs we're, that the, the praise team is going to lead us in. And while they're leading, let us take stock of our hearts, and let us confess our sin to God. And after you've done that, can you... Grant yourself the ability to just be amazed that as you've confessed your sin, that an eternal transaction has taken place and your sins have been forgiven and removed from you as far as the east is from the west. Isn't our God good? Isn't our Savior powerful?